Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Hope you're doing well. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 16 through 23 today. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Last week, if you're here with us, uh, you'll remember that Paul exulted in our life in Christ. Christ who has overcome all earthly, all demonic powers, every power, everywhere, in existence. Jesus has conquered it all. And today, Paul fleshes out what it means for us to live as new creations now that Christ has triumphed over all earthly powers. So let's read it now. Colossians 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word. Here's an important, important as an understatement, a vital question we must answer. How do you know you're truly a Christian? How do you know? Are there certain things you do that tell you so? Are there certain things you don't do that tell you so? Are there certain things that you know that other people don't? How do you know? That was the question that the Colossians were confronted with. Someone was questioning their Christianity, judging them, and deeming them religiously insufficient. They were told they needed Jesus plus something. The proper ascetic lifestyle or religious rule following, something. Jesus plus something. But Jesus plus something, though it may be a religion, is not Christianity. Jesus plus anything is it's a distortion of the gospel. It's an offense to the free grace of God in Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6.63. He said, The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I love that verse. It's so clear. And yet we mess that up in our minds all the time, don't we? But what did Jesus say? Did he say that the flesh is some help? He said the flesh is no help at all. Not even a little bit of help. 
We cannot define our Christianity by what we do in the flesh because it is no help at all. We must define our Christianity by what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is is news we receive, not a badge that we earn. The gospel is not Jesus plus. The gospel is Jesus only. The gospel does not come to us in our Father's wisdom and to say, here's an outline of your life if you'd like to use it for yours. The gospel does not come to us from the nail-pierced hands of Jesus, our Savior, and say, here's my body and blood to give you a boost. The gospel is not spoken to the deep places of our hearts by the Spirit to say, you can do it, and here's a little motivation to help. No. The gospel proclaims over us from the mouth of God, you are redeemed finally and fully for God's glory and by His grace. The only thing you contributed to the finished work is the sin that made, it, made salvation necessary in the first place. But even that is taken care of at the cross of Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is always the temptation to come to God with more than the empty hands of faith. But he asks for nothing more. Listen to what the Bible says. In Isaiah 55, God speaks through his prophet, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That is the call of the gospel. In Matthew 28, 11, Jesus says, come to, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We don't have to bring our resumes. We don't have to list our achievements. We come with nothing. And in fact, to come with anything but nothing is not to really come at all. There are no conditions we must meet. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about that verse. He said between that word save and the next word sinners, there is no adjective. It does not say penitent sinners. It does not say awakened sinners, sensible sinners, grieving sinners, or alarmed sinners. No, it only says sinners. That's the bar. Are you a sinner? The only qualification we need for the salvation of Christ is our need. We need only be a sinner. We bring the sin... He provides the saving. No need to qualify yourself through deeds. No need to even clean yourself up first. There's only the call to come. The gospel call of God is a simple one. 
I might even say an easy one. It's a light one. It's an inviting one. It is a promise to save all who merely come to him. Who go straight to him with the empty hands of faith. Nothing else is needed. And when we come like that, we find in him the the fullness of salvation with all the benefits we could ever have in Christ now and forever fully and freely given to us. That's the good news of the gospel. Some people in Colossae believed that was a good enough for a start. But it doesn't really take you to the deep end. Some people today believe that too. I wonder if you do. I think we're all tempted to, aren't we? But the gospel isn't merely the start of our journey. It's not just the doorway, it's the pathway. The gospel is not something we graduate from and then go on to get our PhD in spirituality by other means. The way to a deeper spirituality is to dive into the gospel deeps. The deeper we go, the bigger it gets. And the more holy we become. Not because of what we are doing, but because of what Jesus is doing in us. So to the question, how do you know you are a Christian? The answer is not more difficult than saying boldly by faith, Because Jesus saved me. True spirituality does not consist of outward appearances, but inward reality with Christ. And that's what Paul's addressing in this passage. He wants to encourage these Colossian believers. He wants to confront the false teachers and break the bonds that they are attempting to tie around the church there. And he does this in three exhortations. Only God can judge you. Only God can qualify you. And only God can free you. So first, only God can judge you. We see this in verses 16 and 17. What was going on is is inside the Colossian church was this self-appointed jury that looked out on others with judgment upon their spiritual lives. There was an inner ring claiming to have the inside scoop on spirituality. Now, so far in Colossians, we've we've heard that there's some false teaching, but we haven't really seen any specifics of what it might be. But we start seeing some specifics in verse 16. And we see that it included abstaining from certain foods and drinks. It, it, It included observing certain days, festivals, new moon, Sabbath. You know, when we look at that, it sounds like Jewish law, doesn't it? Most scholars don't believe this was a purely Jewish heresy. But whatever it was, it included Jewish elements. Regardless of its real roots, the false teachers set the boundaries of true spirituality around these doctrines and likely more and judged others accordingly. They're watching. What are they doing? Do they pass the test? 
Paul wants both parties, especially those who cling to Christ as their only hope, to know that this judgment is just wrong. No man can judge another because no man can see the heart. Only God can judge. And even more deeply, God has already judged. He's already passed his judgment on those believers in the church. When? On the Christ of cross. On the cross of Christ. As we saw last week, God forgives our trespasses and cancels our debt by nailing it to the cross. Remember that verse? It's such a great verse. Jesus was perfect in every single way. He never once sinned. I don't know if you've ever really thought about that. That's an incredible reality. But on the cross, Jesus was judged for our sins as if they were his sins. God placed them all upon him as our substitute. This is why the cross is called the great exchange. All our sin was placed on Jesus. And what did he do in return? All of his righteousness is placed on us. So now it's not just as if we never sinned but also as if we've always obeyed. It's not just merely a clean slate. This is the fullness of Jesus' perfection given to his people. So if that's true, and Paul's already said it is, and the rest of the Bible attests to that truth, who is left to judge the Colossians? If God has judged and acquitted in Christ, there is no higher court to appeal to. That's Paul's point. No one can judge now because in Christ they have already been judged and found not guilty by grace. And that's not only true when you first believe, but it remains true for the rest of your life. Every day, you are as free as if Jesus just died for you a moment ago. Isn't that amazing? Now, in fairness, perhaps the false teachers would agree that Jesus paid for our sins. I mean, most heresies are not so blatant, especially inside the church, but... They still held to a certain path as the way to true spirituality. But that is really only a new law. Like the Old Testament law, it's only a shadow of the things to come. As Paul said in Romans 7, verse 4, When Christ died, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. If we have died to the law, what good is it to live to it again? As if it can give something that Jesus can't. That's what those false teachers are saying. And Paul says they're just, they're just chasing shadows. They're just going after the wrong thing. 
They're never able to really grasp it because no one can truly obey everything. Think of your personal standard for living. Does anyone measure up? Do you measure up? They're going after the old age, but the new age has come. The law was a shadow of the good things to come, but the substance, the real stuff, belongs to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the law, and we have all of that fullness now in Him. Why then go back to the law? You see the logic He's using here. If you already got it, what are you chasing after? You've got it. The problem can be boiled down to one word, legalism. Most of us probably know what that means, but I want to define it anyways, because it's really important. Legalism is the idea that we earn favor with God through what we do or don't do, through our works. Now, obedience is important. God requires it. But it does not gain favor with Him. Because we have all the favor we will ever need in Jesus right now. Our works can add nothing to that. Any more than the works of your children, if you have them, add to your love for them. You love them because you love them. And for those in Christ, God loves you because He loves you. Maybe, you're, uh, maybe you grew up in a home with siblings. Maybe you had a lot. Maybe you just had one. And maybe you know your parents love you. I mean, they're your parents. But you often feel like the black sheep of the family. I don't know. I mean, I can never measure up to you know, that all-star brother or sister that I've got. They can never love me like they love them. Now, I doubt that's true. (laughs) I'm a parent. I know what it's like. I have four kids. I love them equally. But do we think that's how God loves us? With degrees of affection. That He loves Steve somehow more than He loves David. Does God love like that? No. No. He loves us all as He loves Jesus Christ, His Son. The doctrine of adoption of God means that we are adopted as sons and daughters in Christ, which means that He loves us as He loves us in Christ, with all of that perfection that's ours by faith. That's why Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer in John 17, He prayed to the Father, you have loved them even as you have loved me. That's an incredible verse. You have the fullness of God's love and favor in Christ now and forever. Do you believe that? Legalism says you don't. 
Legalism says you don't have that. Legalism establishes requirements of moral conduct beyond what the Bible teaches and then sets the boundaries of true spirituality and acceptance dependent upon you doing those things. And in its ugliest form, legalism forces that theology on others. That's what was happening inside the church in Colossae. They were saying the only way to know someone is fully in is to look at their life, to see if they're really following these rules that we, these super group of people, have decided are the right rules. Faith had become this sidebar issue, really. It was just the doorway in, but it wasn't what really mattered. Works are what really matter. Legalists were excluding Christians from the church. That must never happen. And the problem is, as Paul wants to point out, is they're not in charge. Jesus is. One of my favorite phrases is the finished work of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not say, my part's done, now your turn. He said, it is finished. Jesus lived the perfect life that we failed to live. And on the cross, he atoned for all our sins to set us right with God now and forever. He finished that work. And he was raised on the third day. What Jesus has accomplished and filled up on our behalf, he does not also ask us to do in order to earn his favor. What God has deemed finished, let no man continue. God asks us to obey him, yes, but it's out of the fullness of the grace we have been given, not as a path to it. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? We obey because we are loved, not in order to be loved. We obey because we have spiritual life in Him, not to gain it. True spirituality is found in Christ alone, in communion with Him, in living inside of His gospel promises, in going into the, the, the gospel deeps. Not in eating and drinking the right things or observing the right days, but in loving the Savior and following Him. So only God can judge you. Secondly, only God can qualify you, verses 18 and 19. So Paul cast off their, their judge in verses 16 and 17, and in verses 18 and 19, he goes after their self-appointed referee. They were proclaiming that these Colossian Christians had violated the rules of the game and therefore they're disqualified from playing any longer. Whereas before it was a matter of do's and don'ts, now it's a matter of, of who's and what's. Who do they worship? To what are they holding fast? They insist on asceticism, which it's a bit confusing. It's hard. The Greek word there really means humility. They thought themselves humble for their actions. But Paul wants to highlight that it's really a false humility. True humility does not hold others to its standard, does it? 
it goes to the low place. Their humility lifted themselves above others as judges and referees. It puffed them up. In the area of worship, they venerated angels. You see that in the text. This was common in the ancient world. Uh, the author of Hebrews confronted the same thing in Hebrews chapter 1. They go on about their visions. They're puffed up by a sensuous mind. In a word, they're misfocused. They're looking at things other than Jesus. And so many things go wrong when we do that. The key for these false teachers is this mysticism that seems spiritual and supposedly leads one to the fullness of life is not Christ-centered. Too many other things are crowded in with him. Jesus might have a seat at the table, but he's just one of the board members. And that's not Christianity. But it's an easy reality for us all to fall into, isn't it? We can crowd our lives with all kinds of spiritual things. But the one true source of spiritual health is Jesus and Him alone. True spirituality is found only in Christ because the fullness of deity dwells in Him. Paul has been very clear about that throughout this letter. Fullness is not found in the angels. It's not found in mysticism. It's not found in asceticism. It's found in Jesus only. Anything done apart from holding fast to Jesus is a dead end. It's just a waste of time, ultimately. It may claim spirituality, but it's actually the opposite of it. The only truly spiritual people are those who hold fast to the head because the body is nourished and knit together with a growth from God by staying connected to the head. Francis Schaeffer once said, This is where true worship is found. Not in stained glass windows, candles, or altarpieces. Not in contentless experiences, but in communion with God, with the God who is there. Communion for eternity and communion now with the infinite personal God as Abba, Father. When we disconnect ourselves from the head, everything starts going wrong. We start thinking of God not as our Father, but as someone we must please, as someone we must do things for. We can never really truly have peace. True spirituality comes down to one simple thing, and that's communion with God. That's why Paul says in verse 19 that the problem with all this extra stuff is that it leads to a puffed up mind. It doesn't do anything at all to really connect one to Jesus. Whether one is a Christian is not their observance of dietary laws or observance of days or even their super spiritual lifestyle, but whether one belongs to Jesus. It's not about a certain experience, but a certain, a certain reality, reality with Christ, moment by moment. 
Jesus can't just be a board member. He has to be the only leader. He has to be the head. He needs to just, you just need to let him in and just let him fire everybody else. Paul uses the illustration of the body in verse 19 because a body only has one head. And for the church communally, communally and the church and the Christian individually, that head is Jesus and Jesus alone. We are nourished by him. We are knit together through joints and ligaments and the growth that he gives is from God himself. It's not from outside. It's from God himself. If you are in Christ, what Paul has said, what the Bible says, is that you are part of his body. And I don't know about you, but one of my fingers has never made some argument of qualification to me. It just is a part of me. Merely being joined is enough. True spirituality is Jesus reigning and ruling and guiding and leading and caring and providing and nourishing our life. If we have him, he will take us to the deep places of spirituality. And we just have to let him take us there. But if we leave him, no matter how spiritual we may look on the outside, we are but whitewashed tombs on the inside. Our communion with God makes all the difference. Jesus joined us to himself. Let's not cut ourselves off. Let's not let anyone else cut us off. No one can say to a body part, you don't belong. So don't let anybody say it to you either. Not if you trust Christ. Only God can judge you. Only God can qualify you. And third, only God can free you. Verses 20 through 23. Verse 20 takes us into the crux of Paul's argument. It's the same with what we saw last week. It all hinges on the death of Christ and our death in him at the cross. Notice the logic Paul uses. Everything the false teaching did was only is only enslavement to the things of this world. But, Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, and so forth. The false teaching said, if you would only do these things and not do these other things, you'll find spiritual freedom. That's where the real stuff is. But that was a lie. They probably really believed it, those false teachers, but it was a lie. It looks good, but it's ineffective. Rules and regulations can never really free us. Not in the way they were pursuing them. Only God can free us. The problem with so much spirituality and so much spiritual talk is that it, it, it phrases things in the negative. 
I find that especially true probably inside the church. As I interact with other Christians, I'm not saying here at Refuge, but just in the wider world. I mean, it's so negative sounding so often. But true spirituality is not a negative reality, but a positive one. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free. God's desire is not our continued enslavement to this world or to the powers of this world, but rather freedom in Christ to live as we were made to live. Now, will we look different after we come into him? Yes, we will. But he's doing the work. So many people look at religion and see only shackles. I understand why they do. If we define our spirituality in terms of do's and don'ts, I don't know why anyone would ever really want it. But if we define our spirituality in terms of freedom, in the Jesus who saved us, I don't know why anyone wouldn't want that. So what does it mean to be free in Christ? Let's just think about that for a little while as we close this sermon. To be free in Christ means that we are dead to everything unholy in this world. It means that we are no longer slaves to our sinful desires. Now, we may not always win the battle, but Jesus has won the war. Sin may tempt us and sometimes might even trip us, but it can never rule us again. To be free in Christ means that we're dead to the law, which, though a gift of grace from God, was only really a schoolmaster to keep us until the coming of Christ who can free us. And because Jesus obeyed the law perfectly and gave his perfection to us in his sacrifice on the cross, we now have a power to obey in a way that we never had before. It's not just a clean slate, as I said earlier. It's the righteousness of Christ that's ours for the taking. To be free in Christ means we don't need to be impressive. It's so exhausting, isn't it? It's hard to look good. Because I'm just not good. Not in myself. We don't need to be impressive because we are fully known by God and yet deeply loved. Everyone in this world is afraid of being found out. But God sees and knows everything in your life. All of the bad parts. All of the deepest, darkest parts. Some parts you aren't even aware of. 
What did that do? Did that make him turn from us and never come again? No, 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 no. It's what, part of what compelled him to come and save us. God knows your deepest fears and longings and regrets and temptations and all the rest. And he lavishes his grace and mercy upon you in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, moment by moment. And he'll never leave you nor forsake you. To be free in Christ means that you are fully qualified for heaven and life with him forever right now. Not one day out in the future when you finally get your act together, but right now. You didn't earn it because you can't earn it. God gives it freely to us in Christ. He earned it for us. He's our entry ticket. More than that, he's our very life now. Your life is is bound up with His. You are hidden with Him, in Him. You are seated with Him in the heavenlies. I don't even really know what that means. But that sounds amazing. All that we want most deeply is found in Jesus and can never be lost and will never fade. Because He's not going anywhere. Your future is incredibly bright and no one else can do anything to change that. You can't even do anything to change that. No one can snatch you from his hands. You are as secure as Christ is. And he's the Lord of all. To be free in Christ means more than we can even say here today. In fact, it means more than we could say if that's all we did for the rest of our life here on earth. It will, in fact, take eternity to plumb the depths, and I'm not sure we will ever reach the bottom. It'll be just one more experience after another of freedom in Christ and joy unending forever and ever and ever. Why would we want to go to anything else? In Christ, you have all you will ever need. And Paul just wants to tell us today, cling to him. Don't chase shadows. You can hug the substance. Don't cut yourself off. Hold fast to the head. Don't live for this world and its rules. It will never satisfy. It will only always let you down. Rather, rejoice in your death in Christ. And even more than that, rejoice in your life in Him that you have right now, and we'll never lose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have freedom in Christ. 
that you have done everything necessary to save us finally, fully, freely, forever. That that reality is not an ever-changing one, but an everlasting one. Lord, I pray that we would just cling to you. That we would just experience reality with you moment by moment. That we would let you take us into true spirituality, into deep spirituality, into the deep waters of the gospel. Where we don't drown, but where we find our true life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.